Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringle here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Hi, this is Matthew Barzen, author of The Power of Giving Away Power. And you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringle. Hi, this is Bill Ringle, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. Joining me today is Matthew Barzan. Matthew Barzan has always been fascinated by how we can stand out and fit in at the same time. He helped countries do both when he served as U.S. Ambassador to Sweden from 20, 2009 to 2011 and the United Kingdom starting in 2013. He helped citizens do both as a national finance chair for Barack Obama by pioneering new ways for people to have stronger, a stronger voice in politics. And he helped tech com- consumers do both as an entrepreneur when he helped start CNET networks in the early 1990s. He was in the ground floor, literally employee number four. And during his tenure, the company grew to more than 3,000 employees, and he oversaw the marketing budget's growth from $1 million to $100 million. Matthew Barzon is based in Louisville, Kentucky, with his wife and three children, and is here to talk about his book, The Power of Giving Away Power, How the Best Leaders Learn to Let Go. Welcome, Matthew. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Great to be with you. Tell me, when you were growing up, who's somebody who influenced or inspired you? It was my grandfather, Jacques Barzan, and he lived to 104 and 11 twelfths, so almost 105. But thinking back to when I was young, he... He was an amazing man. He was provost at Columbia University. He was born in Paris and then came to this country as a teenager, came to Columbia and never left. And he wrote 40-something books and he was quite formal, but loving in his own way. And one of the things he said to me early on, or he wrote it and I read it, and it's always stuck with me, is not everything is a problem to be solved. Many things in life are just difficulties to be dealt with. And that sounds like it wasn't exactly an inspirational talk, but I think making that distinction between problems and difficulties actually is empowering in its own way. Tell me what that means to you from the lens of when you were a teenager. How did you make sense of that? If you think of, I mean, just being a teenager is such for, certainly for me and for most teenagers I've met, now I'm the father of three of them. It's just a confusing time. And I think that confusion continues in different ways in the rest our grown-up lives. And if amidst that confusion, if you think everything that you're suffering with is a problem to be solved and you can't find a solution, it can be really discouraging. But if you just said, no, these aren't, not everything can be solved. And I think we tend to be in a kind of a solutionist culture and that whole kind of tech West Coast thing feeds into that idea that everything can be solved. But if you say, no, this is a difficult to be gotten through or worked around or worked through, especially worked through with others, that's the part that, that I hang on to. That's interesting. Can you think of how that served you when you were maybe in one of your first jobs out of college and were, was helping somebody else understand the distinction between problems to be solved and difficulties to be? Well, you know, it's funny. After college, I was in the dot-com tech world of CNET, as you mentioned in the introduction. And in that world, I, none popped to mind right now. I think we were living it in the sense that the internet was so new. And when something's really new and growing that fast, you can get away with a lot of 
half-baked ideas that actually do pretty well. So it's a strange training ground. But in the world of diplomacy, which I got into later, I found it very helpful just because it's if you're dealing between the relationships between two countries, one realizes pretty soon that this is not something that's going to just be solved. It's an ongoing, it's a relationship, just like a human relationship. And so stop trying to solve it, even though many of our smart women and men who are career foreign service people are very good at solving problems. I found making that distinction helpful. That's interesting. And one of the key characters that you bring to the foreground in your book is Mark, uh, Mary Parker. What did you learn from studying her and how it's applicable to business leaders and managers today? I'm sure your listeners will have heard of the name Peter Drucker. And Peter Drucker is probably the most quoted leadership management, small, medium-sized business, big company, big government thinker. And in fact, Harvard Business School, I think, asked something like 200 business gurus from around the world, this is 20 years ago, who is your guru? And so they proudly published the list of the guru's guru, and it was Peter Drucker. But the interesting thing, Bill, is that Peter Drucker, towards the end of his life, revealed that he had a guru all along. So it's the guru's guru. And it was this amazing woman named Mary Parker Follett. And Drucker says in the essay where he says that this is his guru, that two things, all the good leadership ideas that we talk about today have come from her and that she has been erased, as he put it, from history, erased from history. And so I was intrigued by that because I really liked Peter Drucker. And I went back and to discover her work. She was born in 1868. She died in 1934. Back then, she was the equivalent of the most sought after speaker on, let's say, the TED circuit. She had the viral TED talk of her time. Now, 100 years ago, she is writing at a time when America is coming out of a global pandemic racial, social, economic division everywhere she looks, big debates about the overreach of big business, equally raging debates about the fear of government doing too much to do something about the power of big business. Sound familiar? And she says, look, all of that can be really daunting, but there's actually something very small, practical, and tactical each of us can do about it. And that's what I talk about in the book. And getting very specific, she says, look, uh, I want to talk about meetings now, we often, I think many listeners here use groan. And one of the interesting things about all of us going through COVID and, and these lockdowns together is a real reimagining of what the future of work is going to look like and who needs to be in, in the office and when and all that sort of thing. But she said, forget whether it's a face-to-face -face meeting or a virtual meeting. There's four possible outcomes of a meeting and only one of them is worthwhile. And think for your listeners how many of our meetings can pass what I call the Mary Parker Follett test. So, well, what is the Mary Parker Follett test? Anyway, bad outcome number one, you try to win the meeting. In other words, you come into the meeting with your perfect idea and you just want everyone else to say yes. And she said, look, that's no good. Why did you have anyone else to the meeting? Bad outcome number two is the opposite. And you just think, look, Bill is being pushy or Jane is being pushy. I'll just let them win. So she calls that acquiescing. And she said, that's no better. You're denying the group a unique perspective, namely your own. And here's the trickiest one, Bill. Bad outcome number three, according to Mary Parker Follett, is compromise. Now, I was always taught that compromise was something we should seek, but she says, no, think about it. If you're compromising, it's really just a set of little mini victories and mini acquiescences. At best, you leave that meeting with a subset of what you came into it with. So the only good outcome from a meeting, outcome number four, is what we can think of as co-creation, making something together. 
It doesn't have to be a product. It doesn't, it could just be making a determination, making a product roadmap, but the act of making something with other people, it may seem mundane, but there's real magic in there. And there's magic because you didn't, as a participant, come into that meeting with that idea fully formed, but you were leaving with it. It is forever part of you. You are forever part of it. So what I think flows from all of us, and I try to have this almost as like a mantra on a little cue card next to my laptop when I do virtual meetings, is three expectations we ought to bring to every encounter. One, expect to be needed. Two, expect to need others. That's why you're in a meeting. And most importantly, expect to be changed, right? Expect to be changed by the process of meeting and making with others. So that's very different. When people come to a meeting, they're often not expecting to be changed by it, but it really signals an openness to hearing other people's viewpoints, taking into account things they haven't thought of. And from an outside perspective, those are called blind spots. And and it enriches thinking and discussion to have those included. That's totally right. If you think back to, and I think most of the listeners here are of an age where we maybe dimly remember this, but it certainly wasn't in our working lives, which is when the overhead slide pre-PowerPoint So the overhead slide projector, so you just think of sort of corporate America in the 50s and 60s. I was not alive, but imagine it where the only one with the authority to get, it was quite expensive to get the overhead slides printed would have been the leader, whoever the chief executive or the division leader, but it was a very hierarchical thing. And if you think about how PowerPoint has democratized now anyone can give a presentation. What I think is interesting, I, I this got cut from the book because I wanted to keep it short that you could read it in one go. But PowerPoint, what it is, it is democratized demagoguery. It has democratized one boss forcing everyone. It's basically an instrument for winning, right? And so you have your thing perfectly pitched. You get other people there. And then someone tries to interrupt and, and, and contribute their idea. And you're like, wait, Bill, we'll get to that on slide 37. It's, right? a and it's a total control mechanism. And then by slide 38, let's just say that's the last one. You have that eerie and I think very sort of inauthentic slide. Most of us, when we do this, at the end, that just says question. It's like by slide 38, you have squeezed out all the energy of this group as you've done this forced march to your one idea all by Almost yourself. Almost by design. Almost by, exactly by design. So these patterns of behavior that we let into our lives actually do real harm. And therefore, we can replace them, I think, which is what I try to talk about in the book with other more helpful patterns. So one idea that comes to mind about a better model for being able to have collaborative discussions where something new arises is the two or the six page brief that they talk about um, in Amazon, where Jeff Bezos said, listen, no PowerPoints. If you have an idea you want us to work on and make a decision about, write it up anywhere from two to six pages, I think was the model. And that way you could spell everything out. We could read it. We're all on the same page. And then we discuss it and make a decision. But it's not going to be a PowerPoint. It's going to be a discussion. Is that something that jives with your thinking about the way to have that co-creation take place? And what would you add to it? What are other models that you might have seen? It's certainly better than PowerPoint, right? For all the reasons uh, you, you just articulated. What I think Mary Parker Follett would advise us to do is to say, okay, that's good. But if you've worked really hard, and I think all the people who would have presented to Jeff two, three, six pages, there is a lot of ownership in the good and bad sense in that document. So there's a lot of, I want to win this. I want to get everyone to say yes to this. And when they start trying to mess with it, and there's something about the printed word in Microsoft on paper that has this sort of chiseled in stone feel to it. And what I always 
say in my meetings is so many things we do are in dark pencil or not even, or just whiteboard. And sometimes the West Coast culture gets a little carried away with whiteboards and it's easy to make fun of silly techie whiteboards. But what I like about whiteboards is that they it's so obviously provisional, right? It's And if you can get other people to get up there and you start drawing and people add their own shapes and words to it, then you are quite literally making something together as opposed to responding to thumbs up, thumbs down to someone else's six-page memo. That really gets to another key model in your book, which is the difference between the pyramid and the constellation. And those are really crucial ideas, given the idea of being able to delegate power, to give up power, to assign and work with other people to empower them. Can you share how you came up with the idea and how it applies today, where you think about it maybe in your own organization or other models of people incorporating the constellation as a tool in their decision-making and business work? Yes, and this is tricky for a audio presentation because it does lend itself to visuals. So I well, hope- Well, you uh, give the, to instruct us all to take out a dollar bill. Yes. Okay, great. So take out a US $1 bill if you can. And um, on the back of it is the seal of the United States. This was made in on July 4th, 1776. Actually, it wasn't made. It was They formed a committee to design the US logo on the same day of the Declaration of Independence, but it took longer to design the logo than win the war. Imagine <laughs> that. And we don't have time to get into the full story, but it's a wild one. Anyway, they- um, but Remember, they decided I'm right from away. Philadelphia. Exactly. So this was a good fit. But they decided right away, this, this logo of ours, they called the Great Seal of the United States, ought to have two sides. And quite quickly, they came up with what ought to be on the back, which is the unfinished pyramid, symbolizing strength and duration. And then for the front, they have that eagle clutching the olive branches and the arrows that are familiar to the listeners. The front is also where they have our famous national motto, E Pluribus Unum, which stands for for from many one or out of many one. The thing that took them the longest was, uh, and there was a formula for these things back then, what was called the crest, which was supposed to be the essence of the whole logo. It would go above the eagle's head and above the motto. Now, if you look in the back of a $1 bill, you can see it. If you have a US passport, it's bigger. And so you can see it. But I must have seen this thing a thousand times, 10,000 times, and just looked right through it. And it's 13, now they're symmetrical, but the original design was asymmetrical stars with beams of light coming out behind it. And they called it the radiant constellation. And it symbolized many things. It was 13 colonies, still separate, but choosing to be something stronger together than they could be separately. It was Amer- It was the United, newly formed United States fitting into the community of nations. It was how a citizen might feel part of their town. And so it's a great image. And what I love about it and I'm oversimplifying here, but the pyramid world we know very well. This is the world of hierarchy. It's the world of top down. But interestingly, it's also the world of bottom. We often say bottom up and we think that's the opposite. It's not. The, it's the same shape. It's up, down, in, out, ranking, rating, sorting, sifting. We're all good at it. I just know all the listeners who care about that. We are all good at the pyramid. The constellation is a different kind of order. Um, Where do we see the constellation in effect in day-to-day life today? If we start at the so in the United States itself, if you, I'm calling you from Kentucky, you're in Philadelphia, and uh, the way we set up our country isn't a hierarchy, right? Pennsylvania doesn't report to Washington, D.C. any more than Kentucky reports 
to Washington. And I'm in Louisville, Kentucky. We do not report to our capital in Frankfort, Kentucky. It is not a hierarchical, but there is order and there is connections and there are roles and responsibilities. They just, they lay out much more like a constellation than they do a pyramid. The internet, and I get into this in the book, but there's lots of the most impactful innovations and companies the world has ever seen are actually organized this way. Wikipedia, the internet itself, the largest commercial organization in the history of the world, which for many small and medium-sized business, when I say this name, I may not get positive reactions because of, uh, but the actual story of it is amazing, which is Visa, the credit card company. And the formation of Visa is this uh, remarkable story of, of constellations where the biggest banks in the world, Bank of America, has no more rights and no more power than the tiny little mid bank that the guy who came up with the visa system developed. So in all these different ways, it's all around us. Nature is much more like this. Pyramids don't occur in nature. So that- Let's I take hope- it here. Two of the biggest models, and by biggest and most popular, most closely followed, most um, often taught are Steve- in business, is are Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, as well as Jim Collins' Good to Great. You and I have read the books, we've taught them to others and helped people learn them because they're useful structures. Yet the constellation model shows that there's more to them. In fact, Stephen Covey, in his 15th anniversary recap of Seven Habits, said that it's really hard to get that interdependence, which is a quality that's essential and characteristic. It's endemic to the constellation model, the interdependence, not just what's um, the private victory. But the public victories, the working with others is so much harder than the private victories that alone we're able to achieve. Talk about what your model brings to that, the insights that people could gain in expanding those just a little bit further. Totally. I think if you, if we go back quickly to what the essence of that constellation image and the way of seeing, thinking, feeling, and behaving that it brings out in us, it is a symbol for interdependence. It is a symbol for, and if you go back to when it began, any band of revolutionaries can declare independence. In fact, in any given year, many people do it. That was not the hard part of what happened in Philadelphia. It was how can we not be, not how can we be free from King George III. It's how can we be free with and through one another. So it's freedom with each other. That's the fascinating, imperfect then, hypocritical then, imperfect now, but the best idea America has ever had. And I think hugely relevant to business because I have to get back to your question now. So I loved the seven habits. There are seven, which was a clever thing for Stephen Covey to do. Really, it's about two things. Habits one through three, habits four through six are, it's really, how do you move from a world of dependence to the world of independence? So using our language, it would be, how do you move from the world of pyramid, of dependence on someone else telling you what to do? The next step is independence. Don't be told what to do by others. And then Covey says, and then you should move from independence to interdependence. So I think he's totally right about that. But what's telling is the first habit of interdependence is win-win, which has become a very common term. And I think the seeds of the misunderstanding are in that phrase. Because if I say, and I, I did this unscientifically, but I must have asked a thousand or more people pre-COVID when people would gather together. And let's say there's a group of 10 people and you say, what's the opposite of winning? Everyone says losing, but that's just a warm up. Then you say, great, I agree. 
What is the opposite of winning and losing? And then something really interesting happens, which is nine out of 10 of us say, I don't know, not playing. And one out of 10 of us says playing or laughing or learning or loving or all the other things we do in our lives and in our business lives or personal lives that you could not win. So you do not win parenting. You do not win your career. You do not win business. You do not win a marriage, although you could certainly lose one if you try to win it. But we are so locked into this pyramid world of up, down, in, out, win, lose, that just by saying the word win, losing comes along with it and all the zero-sum nature of winning and losing. And what's, what I think is inspiring about when I would do these little 10-person mini workshops, you would see that once the nine of us hear the other person say, playing or learning or laughing or be, our shoulders go, they were like, oh, of course. But it's so telling how much the pyramid world of hierarchy isn't just out there in big companies or big government. It's in each of us. We start Truly. to think that if we're not winning, we're doing absolutely nothing. And it's, that's crazy. We are once we, we accept the things. Once we accept the premise of win-loss, we're now locked into that dichotomy. Either we're winning that's or that. losing. So the language we use to describe our intentions, our objectives, our goals has everything to do with the strategies and methods we employ to achieve them. Totally. And it's why when you asked who inspired me now I was younger, in ways I didn't know then, I was a normal 11-year-old kid, but this idea of problems versus difficulties, because solutionism and everything is a problem to be solved is very close to that sort of winning and losing, it's right or wrong, it's on or off, as opposed to the world of difficulties where you work through, you work around, you work with. And yeah, so that is I think a part of it. And then that book was instrumental, I think, into another book I loved and you loved. Let, that Collins could Let me just quote something that you wrote in the book. It says, you say, in my opinion, the biggest threat to business leadership, heck in any area today, is the fear of engaging because of the dynamic of winning versus losing. Can you expand on that, please? I think it, it happens at any scale, but take a meeting, just take a mundane Monday morning meeting wherever we might be. What I think really good business leaders, the, the ones who've inspired me and I try to talk about in the book, some are very famous, some you've never heard of, but what they all had in common was this strength to be able to say the following words, which we, we should all say much more often. I don't know. Maybe we might dot, dot, dot. Think of how many meetings took place in ad hoc COVID committees at businesses of any size in America. I hope all those meetings started, I don't know. How could you possibly know what to do about your policy? Should your team come in half the time, none of the time, all the time? It was a real lesson, I think, in the humility of pretending that we have everything figured out. And this idea of pretending, I mean, the first three words of the book are pretending is exhausting. Pretending is exhausting. And we as leaders think our job is to pretend. And what I think these other leaders can show us is, no, that's not a good, pretending we know the right answer, pretending we have it figured all out and we can just work our way backwards. Yeah. The, the pretending is very important. And the phrase I want to go back to is engagement and disengagement. And it's the fear of engagement because Luann is saying to herself, I'm not going to stand up for Esther, who just got made fun of on the Zoom call, because this no Bart is saying to himself, I'm not going to share this idea with the head of marketing because if she thinks it's stupid, I might not get it promoted. It's the stepping back because of the fear of winning and losing that we're, we are being deprived of so much talent, so many ideas, so many ways of approaching the business and the relationships that make up a business 
that are crucial. And how do we reconcile that? How do we get back from where people are saying it's a win-lose situation in their heads, but really what we're looking for is more engagement to improve the quality of what we're doing? One one story that I'll do shortly that's at the end of the book, but it's this amazingly famous stand-up comic in the United Kingdom when I lived there. He's got three Netflix specials, Jimmy Carr. I'm seated next to Jimmy Carr. I love stand-up comedy, and I had a bunch of questions I wanted to ask. I'd never met a stand-up comedian. And the thing he told me, which wasn't the interesting part of the story, I said, how many jokes, if you're trying out 10 new jokes, how many get a laugh? And he said, I'm at the top of my game. I get three laughs out of every 10 jokes, which I thought was fascinating. In baseball terms, he's batting 300, and that is you know, good in baseball. It's good in joke telling. But what he said next was really what stuck with me, which is, He said, Matthew, jokes are really strange things. If you play a song and no one likes it, it's still a song. And if you put on a play and everybody walks out, it's still a play. But if you tell a joke and nobody laughs, it's just a sentence. And I loved that. And I was like, oh, did something, you know, Groucho Marx say that? He said, no, I said that. I said, I'm going to tell everyone I meet that story. He said, why? And I said, that to me is the essence of leadership. And I was like, leadership is a joke in the sense of a good joke. Not that it isn't important. It's very important. And if you think about what happened when someone gives a joke, the comedian does his or her part, the audience member does his or her part, but together they make a joke. It is a mutual, it occurs between people. And that brings us to Jim Collins and Good to Great, which is probably the single book that I've bought and given away to more people in my life than any. So I loved it. And I say this with love. I went back and reread it after reading Mary Parker Follett and after thinking about constellations. And he talks about level five leaders. I'm sure you've, and he gives them that funny name. And he says, I've interviewed them all. There are these people who are unbelievably humble and unbelievably driven. And they don't want to be put on a top of a pedestal. That's not how they think about themselves. And yet in the book, he literally makes a pyramid and puts level one at the bottom and level five at the top of a pyramid. He puts them on the pedestal they don't want. And he said, I couldn't discover the essence of what was in them in my management laboratory. And he calls it a management laboratory. And what I would suggest is that you will never find those attributes in a management laboratory because they do not exist within that leader. They cannot be isolated to an individual. They only exist in and among and between the participants. So if you look, if you isolate it, you'll miss it because it isn't. And that's the It's really saying how that if we're looking for a solution using the existing tools and thinking methods, we're going to miss it because it relies on looking for criteria where it doesn't exist, where if we broaden our thinking, we'll see strengths that exist already that are being underutilized. We'll see assets that could be leveraged for greater value and greater impact that need to be refreshed and energized and paid attention to. And all these things happen once we start to look with new eyes, rather than looking for solutions to problems or wins that go against the KPIs. This is the aspect of leadership where you're looking beyond it. The other image that I was thinking of as you were describing that, uh, the quote and the Jimmy Carr joke was Charlie Chaplin. There was a movie, very brief black and white movie of him showing that a leader (laughs) needs to have followers. And you could even be an accidental leader because Charlie Chaplin, I think in this little black and white skit, was carrying a flag down the street and all of a sudden he started having followers. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right that the, and so there are a bunch of things. You were talking about Luann and, and some interesting, like these real life situations we all find ourselves in of, is this a good time to speak up? It, what they all had in common as you were going through them is this 
it may seem small, but when we're in the moment, it feels very big and very scary, which is we have to take these leaps for ourselves, leap on behalf of others, and it's really nerve wracking. And what I find helpful in making these leaps is Mary Parker Follett had a favorite professor when she went to what is now Radcliffe and uh, named William James, who's the first original American philosopher. And, and he said, look, there's a lot of things in life where what you think and feel about them make no difference. Okay, like gravity. If you just stare at an apple tree and you're like, when that apple is ripe and it falls, I hope it falls up. It's, you can hope all you want, but it's not going to fall up. It's going to fall down. But he said, there are so many things in life that aren't like that at all, that what you think and feel about them will alter the result. And so he uses the example of a couple falling in love. And he said, if you decide, which is totally rational, if you decide to withhold love and trust from someone until they show it to you first, that is rational, that attitude greatly reduces the likelihood that you will ever be shown love and trust by the other person. If, on the other hand, you decide to make this nerve-wracking leap to extend trust and love to someone who has not shown it to you, you have dramatically increased the odds. And in the realm of human affairs, which is what we're all talking about today, because running businesses is, if nothing else, the realm of human affairs within the team, with customers, with supply chain, you name it, these acts, these leaps are, if you can think of them as increasing the odds of an outcome that you want, it makes the leaping, it doesn't make it less scary, it's still scary, but you know that it's potentially worthwhile because you're increasing the chances. Oh, and it's really nice if someone else will leap with you. So it's nice to have company when you make the leap. Yeah. So here's an interesting thing that many of the managers and leaders who I talk with are saying. They're talking about looking to extend trust and then finding that it's not met with the trust that they expected. And how do you form a strategic partnership with a supplier when somebody says, I want you to know, we really want the supply that you're, you're bringing in, whether it's additional programming talent to work on something, whether it's a hard supply that's coming in for another country. And one fellow was saying, I was vulnerable and said, we want to do this, yet because there's been such a shortage for a long time, I can't, I need to renegotiate the terms and not be as generous with those terms because our cash flow needs to be protected. And he was very open, very vulnerable with this. And he was met with, I'll just sell it to the highest bidder. We don't get to set the rules in a tabula rasa way. We have to work within the mindsets, the preconceptions, and the belief systems of other people in the world. You had to deal with this when you were an ambassador. You couldn't just say, let's really think about how to make this a great situation for all involved. People are always thinking about their own interests and how they can protect them and extend them. And then maybe as a secondary, maybe as a, a tertiary thought, oh, it would be nice to do something for our partner as well. How do you take this into the world when others may not have the same mindset and you have to make adaptations in order to protect real interests. So I, I go back to the Jimmy Carr test, as it were, of even if you're doing things that, in your example, it's, look, I'm being vulnerable, I'm extending trust, I'm sharing my books or my lack of whatever. But that's less than half the battle, so to speak. Because if, if you're doing that, and I'm ticking the boxes on my end, and, and there's even a whiff of you're welcome, it's doomed because the the key thing is to understand the hopes and fears of somebody else. And that's where a very different set of skills come in, very constellation-like, which is to, because remember, in the world of the pyramid, you either fit in or you are left out. 
in the world of the constellation, you can stand out, you are your own star, but you fit into something greater. And so the only, and so the, the key bit of work that you can't skip, it's so tempting to skip it, but you have to really understand as best you can what this other person, this other star's world looks like and what's motivating them. And you will learn why they can't, or you might be able to learn why it is they're going to go do what you just said and go take it to the highest bidder. Which is when I was in the UK, I spent a whole bunch of time with 18-year-old British students who are going to be the future leaders of the UK. And we would do a workshop and it was a blank index card. Draw me a picture of something that frustrates you about America. And they would draw a picture. And we also said, flip it over, draw a picture of something that inspires you about America. But we spent 55 minutes out of the hour on frustrations because so much more energy and potential live in frustrations than live in the happy stuff of what do you love about America. And I think in the business context, that's important too. I have a great friend who runs a chain of independent coffee stores here in Louisville. And he always reminds me, he said, the most angry customer on Yelp or whatever platform they might be complaining, if you go and engage with them, really hear them out, tell me again what happened, why was that so frustrating? Love and hate are very close to each other on the emotional. They come back full circle and they can become your biggest fans. If you're willing to just take that step, don't sell them anything, let them really be heard and really hear them. There are two points that I really want to underscore for everyone listening. One is that when you're thinking of the constellation model, one of the key differences is that unlike the pyramid model, everyone who's in the constellation assumes they belong there and really can't be ejected, evicted, or rejected. You are part of the constellation because you have a rightful place there. And that's really important to think about. It's not losing a relationship. It's just how active can that relationship be? Can it bear fruit from the friction? of going back and forth. And that's right. But if you think about that is absolutely true, Bill. And the second part of that is equally as important, which is, hey, part of what makes constellations, literal ones in the sky, useful for navigation is what's not included, right? There isn't just one giant constellation of every star in the night sky. It is choosing, we're going to connect these ones and not these ones. So new configurations and new patterns. So every star could be connected, but doesn't have to be connected. So there's a real rigor that I know your listeners bring. Because when I've been on this book tour, I think the biggest misconception, which is my fault um, for not explaining it well, is that because we all understand the pyramid and there is order and comfort of a type within the pyramid, we all know it. They think if I'm advocating leaving the pyramid mindset, I must be advocating one of two things. And I'm advocating neither, but they think, aha, this is... It's anarchy, every star, every star for themselves, or it's communism, one giant collective. And I'm not advocating either. Constellations are discrete. They're rigorous. They're useful. They can be reconfigured all the time, but they are, and there is an order and stability to them. It's just a different kind. And the, the thing I try to get that back, I say, okay, imagine two cars in a parking lot. One is, and, and the game is, and everyone will get this right. Each car is identical. They only have one bumper sticker on it, and the bumper sticker only has one word. Car number one says freedom. Car number two says to And you have to guess which is the modern-day Republican car and what is the modern-day Democrat car. So everyone guesses it correctly, which is freedom is the Republican car and together is the Democrat car. And this is not really a political point. It's just a way to get us thinking, which is, okay, in my adult lifetime, I just turned 50 a few years ago. We have seen the freedom crowd take that 
word to a logical extreme of freedom from leave me alone. The Together crowd has done a similar thing. Together, we're all in this total togetherness. And what I think, certainly what we want and what we really need and what the best part of the founding of our country, the best idea America has ever had is freedom together. Freedom, not a compromise, not a little bit free, a little bit together. Freedom through and with one another. And that is the fancy sort of slightly antiseptic term is interdependence. But that is what from many one was supposed to mean. And the guiding image that goes along with that is the constellation. And it's how can we be free together? And briefly, what did you see as the path to that? Because right now, from my perspective and people that I speak with, and I speak to people who are in each car, so I really want to understand perspectives in different ways. When people are so determined to win at the cost of other people losing, how do you bring them together and say, there's a bigger picture here, there's, a, a, there's so much more at stake? Like what you and I were talking about early on before our interview began, that there are other ways for us to be spending our time and energy and funds. And there are really serious issues that need to be addressed. And right now, we're really distracted and uh, derailed from those because of these largely emotional win-loss arguments that are going on solely for the purpose of another party saying, we're fighting for you. And those other guys are, are losers and no goods. Sure. How do you yes. bridge that? So the, the answer to how could we get the, the red and the blue teams in Washington, D.C. or in our state capitals to get along, I would say, I do not know. But but we might figure that out. But here's where I would start. So that is hard to imagine. We're in a really divisive time. I get all that. Everyone on the call knows that in their own way. Here's where I think we can make really meaningful progress that could get us to a better place, which is, and, and you can we can just talk about Washington. We could talk about state capitals. It, it's the same point for either place. Or Forget the, you know, the halls of our own workplace because we have children. At, at any scale, this pattern yeah. prevails. So here's what I would, in the political context, I would say the following. I said, look, forget red and blue getting along. Okay, forget Mitch McConnell, the senior senator from Kentucky, sitting down with President Joe Biden and doing some, put that off to the side for a second. I want us to take a look at what happens when a bunch of people on the blue team sit around the table with one another, and the same with the red team, just within their tribe, so to speak. What is the pattern of behavior at those tables? And I would start trying to mend the mindsets that are happening at that table. Now, they're all on the same team, in quotes, but anyone who's done in politics, some of the most vicious win-lose battles happen within the blue team and within the red team. So the, And you're like, that, that doesn't seem impossible. Why couldn't the blue team actually live up to the Mary Parker Follett test and try to make, it, make new policy together and not try to win all the time? Then you can keep taking it back. Just take it to just the State Department or just the Department of Defense or just the Department at any scale. Then you get that team all sitting at a table. Then they're trying to win for their little, their sub-department. And so that pyramid pattern is at the root of the problem. And so I would try to begin to mend it, not by trying to get red and blue to agree, but to start practicing. Or in, And by the way, I think Mary Parker Follett would agree that we can start to, each of us who runs a company of any size or works at a company of any size can do something about this beginning on Monday, which is, and probably the question I've gotten the most on my tour thus far is, hey, I work at a 
hierarchical organization, but I, what I read about or heard about in this book, I'd like to start. How can I do that? And I say, it's not by asking your boss to give away power, just because that's not going to be received probably. But if you can, and having a friend and colleague help you do it, as we talked about earlier, would be lovely, but it doesn't, it's not required, which is to, in a meeting about any subject, if you can have the courage to say, I don't know, maybe me, we might, and then start live in a meeting, thinking through and working out with no set goal. It's the anti-PowerPoint thing. It's, I don't know where this might lead, but these are smart women and women sitting around with me who all work at the same place. Wouldn't it be fun and worthwhile to make something together? And just use that word make. Instead of let's decide something, let's make a decision together. Now, those are the same thing, but a different mentality. And make it and hear people out and have real rigor. And if you, it is so much more energizing for that boss who may have started the meeting with their arms folded to watch the women and men on their group make something together. It is so much better than the pretending that we do every day. And so if you keep doing that, I think we could really get somewhere. My question to you now, Matthew, is are you ready for the My Quest for the Best Lightning Round? Oh, absolutely, I'm ready. Let's do it. And before we ask the first question, Matthew, we may go five minutes over or so. Are you okay with that? Yeah, that's fine. Okay, just checking. Thank you. So, Matthew, at the beginning of the interview, I asked who influenced and inspired you growing up, and you talked about your grandfather. When you were a teenager, Matthew, what's a song that you loved? Oh, I loved uh, Dream On by Aerosmith. Wait, how's that go? Dream On? Yeah. Oh, I'm not going to sing it for you, Bill. No. Well, Dream On is what they say. There you go. And what do you find is the over most- Over and over and over again. Keep coming yeah. back to it. What do you find is the most effective way that you get the word out about your mission each week? I think being able to engage with people on podcast formats is great because we have the time to have a in-depth conversation, the wonderful production teams that turn these rambling conversations into what I know from listening to your podcast are really beautiful and tight sort of knowledge nuggets is I think what's working the best. And what is your definition of personal success? So Matthew, when you say, I know I'm being successful when, how do you complete that prompt? I feel successful when I am with others who can stand out and be themselves and fit in to something bigger. And what's an example of when that's occurred recently for you? It's funny, my daughter, so the book is called The Power of Giving Away Power. The subtitle is called How the Best Leaders Learn to Let Go. And my uh, daughter, who's at university, saw the, when it first came out, she pointed to it and she just said, ha, huh. and I knew exactly what she meant, which is, I can maybe write about it, I can maybe uh, practice and preach it, but when it comes to parenting, I think it is really hard for my generation of parents to let go, and that's something I'm trying to work on. When you told me that your daughter said, ha, I was waiting for an example of, let's remember that the next time I ask for the car. <laughs> yeah, no, it did. the ha said so much. It didn't need to, it's oh, really? And so that's a hard test. So much was conveyed in just a single word. Matthew, over the past year, think about what's the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've given up or stopped that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? I think the word but is a, and, and it was a wonderful mentor who once told me that he and his partner, if, if someone says but in the conversation of their conversation, they have to take out the trash. It's obviously, it, it has its place, but it's so often, if we use it in a work context or a relationship context, 
it's if someone broke up with you in middle school or high school, they'd say a bunch of nice things about you, but, and you just immediately forget everything before the but. You know what I mean? And I think just pausing and saying and, because so often buts cut things off and leave things open for better connections. Yeah. And people are listening to what you're saying as the, uh, what follows. Yeah. <laughs> so what I want to talk about is it, uh, one of the biggest misconceptions about constellations and giving away power. And it has to do with diplomacy. The relationship between the United States and the United Kingdom has always been, has been referred to since the time of Winston Churchill as a special relationship. And I, I love the most when Hugh Grant says it, says it in movies, <laughs> because it, with a, a particular tone, he shows many different states from utmost respect to its delicate fragility. <laughs> now, you've had a lot of conversations with Barack Obama, former President Barack Obama, since you had responsibility for fundraising during his first presidential campaign. Take us to the moment when you were in the Oval Office, which is a place that not many of us get to visit. And he gave you the papers of ambassadorship and asked you, and you asked oh, him right. if yeah. he had any advice for you. What was that moment like? And what was the advice? It was great. So I'd never been in the Oval Office before, and it looked just like it did on the TV show, The West Wing, which I hope your listeners are also fans of, but or all the movies that they show it, they always get that part. And the whole thing is smaller. So it looks the same. I'm going to interrupt for a moment. In, in The West Wing, during that, that was supposedly taking place around that time, in essence, they got, we got Lord John Marbury, and then United States gave Britain you. <laughs> exactly. But so I go into the Oval Office. On TV, it's always shown like there's a bustling workplace outside. But that is actually not true in, in the West Wing. Everything's quiet. And the scale is domestic. The hallways are narrow. And it's like a house, not a office. But anyway, I go in. As you said, we, we had a nice catching up. And then I he was sitting on the chair by the fireplace and I was sitting all the way to one side on the sofa near him. And I just had one question. So I blurted it out and I said, Mr. President, what advice would you have for a first time diplomat? And he paused and he looked up at the chandelier and he took longer than I thought to say something. And so I had my little black notebook out and my pen and I was ready to write down. And he said, Matthew, listen. And I thought to myself, yes, sir, I am that's why I came all this way. I'm ready to listen. I'm ready to write down all your pearls of wisdom. But that's all he said. And it took me an awkwardly long time to figure out that his advice wasn't listen to all my great advice. His advice was to listen, to just really listen. And so I did that in Sweden where I served first. And then again in London in the ways we talked about just really listening to people and not skipping that step and not wanting people to feel heard, but to hear them. And all of their frustrations and their fears and just get real with that because the fears are real and really listening to them, writing them down, thinking about them. A lot of energy and potential energy lives in frustration and fear. And let's not sweep it under the carpet. Let's embrace it and make that friction fruitful, which is, I think, the best of what that phrase special relationship is all about. Make fruitful friction. And don't, if you think of the opposite, and I did this once, what is the opposite of a special relationship? What's the opposite of the word special, let's say, is routine. And the opposite of a relationship is a transaction about things, not people. Think about how much in our lives we have made into routine transaction. And 
this amazing technology that we sometimes make fun of or complain about is really remarkable. It's let us make so much of our lives into routine transactions, friction-free, but no, and that's fine and totally understandable, but no energy lives in friction-free. So there's a catch and a cost to making things friction-free. How do we embrace fruitful friction at our next Monday morning meeting? Methy, you've been so generous with sharing with us today on my quest for the best, helping us understand your grandfather for, as an early source of inspiration for you, the ideas between a pyramid and a constellation, and the implications for those for managers thinking about how to revive their organizations and inject more energy and produce, as you refer to, and help us understand the fruitful friction that comes from really making our relationships special. We talked about Peter Drucker and how his influence and inspiration was Mary Parker Follett. We talked about so many great ideas that'll be helpful to everyone listening to the show. For, for these and so many more reasons, I want to thank you for joining me on My Quest for the Best. Thank you so much, Bill. Cheers. Matthew, before we say goodbye for now, where could people go to find out more about you and your work online? Great. I am at matthewbarzen.com. So M-A-T-H-E-W, B like boy, A-R, Z like zebra, U, N like November, matthewbarzen.com. And you can download a sample chapter of the book. And I hope people will pull this into our lives. And I'd love to hear from people about where it's working, where it's not, and any questions they may have. Matthew, ignore what I'm going to say here. Can people also download a sample chapter of the book? Absolutely. Great. Matthew, we're going to link to matthewbarzon.com. We're going to link to your social media, as well as places to buy the book. So Matthew Barzon, author of The Power of Giving Away Power, I want to thank you once again for joining me on my quest for the best. Thanks, Bill. So that wraps that up. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review My Quest for the Best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.